Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. It's Monday, August 2nd, and today we're going to be talking about slaughterhouses in America and how they were regulated during the beginning of the pandemic outbreak in 2020. This past spring, the federal government instituted changes that allowed plants not just to stay open during outbreaks, but also to opt out of health guidelines that would interrupt productivity. As a result of this, over 200 workers have died and tens of thousands have gotten sick. That's Joanna Smith, a PhD candidate at UNC Chapel Hill. In her article for Canopy Forum, Slaughterhouses as Sites of Exception, she shows how, although slaughterhouses might seem non-religious at first, they actually function a lot like sacred spaces in how they are set apart from society. And as the pandemic has made clear, they are spaces in which violence is allowed to proliferate. Over the course of the last two centuries, the slaughterhouse has been carefully developed to function as a site of legal exception within which violence against both animals and workers, many of whom are immigrants and people of color, is hidden from the public's gaze while being rendered licit. All this and more on today's episode of Interactions. I'm Janet Metzger, and this is Slaughterhouses as Sites of Exception by Joanna Smith. From the very beginning of the pandemic, America's slaughterhouses have been a flashpoint both for outbreaks of the coronavirus and for public anxiety. As early as April of 2020, major players within the meat industry were giving dire warnings of meat shortages as, predictably, COVID-19 clusters began to erupt at slaughterhouses around the country. The working conditions in meat plants make it easy for disease to spread rapidly. Thousands of workers standing shoulder to shoulder on the disassembly line. Crowded locker rooms, dining halls and bathrooms. Windowless buildings. Yet when the first slaughterhouse was shut down because of an outbreak, a Smithfield pork plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Cries for meat plants to stay open grew louder. Although there were slowdowns all across the food system, with shortages of eggs, milk, produce, and canned goods, none seemed to evoke such an emotional response from the public as the threat of meat shortage. In response to this public outcry, as well as to industry pressure, the federal government decided to give further latitude to an industry already operating according to its own set of rules. At the end of April 2020, Donald Trump invoked the Defense Production Act, which allowed slaughterhouses to stay open in spite of state-specific mandates. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration also released a new set of health directives for the meat industry. They instructed corporations that as long as they followed safety guidelines, if feasible, within their plants, they would be legally protected against litigation in the event that workers became sick or died. 
Together, these shifts have allowed plants not just to stay open during outbreaks, but also to opt out of health guidelines that would interrupt their productivity. This was a bold expansion of slaughterhouses' already exceptional status during a time of crisis, and it reflects more than just the economic importance of slaughterhouses. It also reveals the complex role that slaughterhouses play in the American imagination. Slaughterhouses are a potent symbol of American productivity, profitability, and abundance. This has been the case ever since the very first industrial slaughterhouses were developed at Chicago's Union stockyards in the wake of the Civil War. Tourists would flock to see these factories, streaming in to watch as workers killed up to 8,000 hogs a day. Slaughterhouses had the scale, the efficiency, and the ability to transform something as elemental as flesh into an industrial product, and it made them appear to contemporary observers to be the harbingers of a new era, one in which American industry was ascendant. Crucial to the allure of this new mode of mass killing was its hermetic containment. It took the bloody work of killing, this nagging reminder of our own animality, and contained it. Tourists could choose to see animals killed in a slaughterhouse if they wanted to, but they no longer had to worry that they might turn a street corner and accidentally glimpse a butcher with his knife held to an animal's throat. The wars of the 20th century only served to reinforce the association between slaughterhouses and a vision of industrial abundance. In the decades that followed the First World War, regulators sought to centralize and streamline the meat industry so that it could be reliably deployed to feed an army. Today, our meat production is no longer focused on feeding a wartime army, but public rhetoric around the meat industry during the coronavirus pandemic has been saturated with militaristic pride. It shouldn't surprise us that Donald Trump invoked a law typically used to mobilize munitions production during wartime to keep slaughterhouses open during the pandemic. To close our slaughterhouses would be to, quote, unquote, surrender to the virus. Then-Vice President Mike Pence has called meat workers heroes, and Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue has publicly thanked those he calls patriotic meat processing facility workers for their service to the country. Even so, around the edges of this lofty rhetoric, rhetoric that casts workers as self-sacrificing patriots, foot soldiers against the coronavirus, it's possible to catch a glimpse of the ragged threads of a competing logic. Wisconsin's Supreme Court Chief Justice downplayed the importance of coronavirus outbreaks in her state, saying that it was just meatpacking workers and not regular folks who were contracting the virus. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar also brushed aside outbreaks at slaughterhouses, by suggesting that they were likely caused by the home and social behavior of workers, not their working conditions. These moments and others like them were not simply slip-ups, embarrassing moments of political incorrectness. Instead, 
They signify a more complicated logic around slaughter that Americans have internalized. At moments of crisis, slaughterhouses are held up as symbols of American industry and resilience. But slaughterhouses are also mechanisms of containment for the dirty work of killing, work which is thrust into the hands of workers who are too often considered as somehow less than American. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, Interactions listeners. This is Justin Latterell at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion. If you like this episode and want to learn more about the interactions of law and religion around the world, check out the link to our book brochure in the podcast description. There you'll find over 40 new titles like God and the Illegal Alien by Robert Heimberger and Michael Perry's new book on human rights, democracy, and constitutionalism. Each title includes a short description and a link to buy the book online. Thanks for listening to Interactions. Slaughterhouses operate outside of the public gaze and have come to exist as carefully carved-out zones of legal exception inside of which violence against animals and exploitation of workers, many of whom are people of color and immigrants, is rendered licit. Animals are abused. Injured workers are forced to stay on the line. Employees are denied bathroom breaks and sick leave. Undocumented employees are threatened with deportation. The scant protections that exist for workers and animals within the walls of the slaughterhouse are easily circumnavigated by management and dismantled by industry lobbyists. Until recently, USDA restrictions capped kill speeds at the already breakneck pace of 1,106 hogs an hour. Those restrictions were lifted completely last fall, with the USDA announcing that the industry would now be trusted to self-regulate line speeds. As of early spring 2021, over 250 meat workers in the U.S. have died, and over 50,000 have gotten COVID. Even with every so-called feasible protection in place, workers have reported being discouraged from reporting symptoms, being misled about infection rates in the workplace, and being asked to work under blatantly unsafe conditions. Kenneth Sullivan, the CEO of Smithfield, was faced with criticism from Democratic senators for prioritizing productivity over workers' health, but he insisted that his company and other industry giants bore little responsibility for the risks posed to their workers under coronavirus or for the inflexibility of their models. Our plants are what they are, he wrote in an open letter, implying that slaughter organically and inevitably evolved to the form in which we see it today. 
The truth of the matter is that there is nothing inevitable about how slaughterhouses developed in America. Two centuries ago, the act of slaughter was woven into public life, with animals killed as needed on street corners and city squares, and in butchers' shops and barnyards. But as urban reform movements coalesced during the 19th century, and as Americans' appetite for meat rose, public sensibilities around violence began to shift. The modern slaughterhouse was developed to hide the sight of mass killing from the eyes of the civilized public. Over the 20th century, the meat industry has continued to envelop itself in increasingly elaborate layers of secrecy, consolidating slaughter into fewer, larger plants, and gaining more license to self-regulate within those plants. Just in the last decade, a spate of so-called ag-gag laws aimed at silencing whistleblowers within the industry have given this secrecy legal teeth. In historian Paula Young Lee's words, the modern industrial slaughterhouse has in many ways become an anti-monument, a potent negative space which Americans have trained their eyes to look around and through. Like so many spaces that are set apart, made sacred in the ancient sense of the word, the slaughterhouse has proven its ability to both attract and repel. And as with other liminal spaces like prisons, military bases, and immigration detention centers, all of which have also been rife with coronavirus outbreaks, the American public has seemed to uneasily accept slaughterhouses as an unchangeable part of our nation's infrastructure. Our plants are what they are. Sullivan's words may not describe a historical reality, but they sharply portray a social reality. Outbreaks at plants, along with shortages in the supply chain, have rendered the messy work of killing and the exploitation that enables it to churn on in spite of a pandemic more visible than it has been in decades. Americans are now confronted with a choice. We can choose to look, and if we don't like what we see, we can demand change. For now, these plants are what they are, but they don't have to remain that way. So this is a moment at which public gaze has the potential to disrupt the meat industry as we know it. There is nothing inevitable about how slaughterhouses have evolved to their current status as sites of legal and indeed cultural exception, and there's nothing inevitable about their trajectory in the months and years to come. That was Slaughterhouses as Sites of Exception by Joanna Smith. You can find the full article on Canopy Forum by following the link in the episode description. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen. I am your narrator, Janet Metzger. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.